It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining, and when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, But make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it and you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello Snowflakes and welcome to the New European Podcast, a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. Subscribe to the New European at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. For £10 a month you get the printed and e-editions each week. My name is Steve Anglesey and what a week it's been for titles. The club I support, Man City, well they lost and lost for years and now they've just won their fifth Premier League title. And last Thursday... Angela Rayner, who was Labour's election supremo, lost and lost in the local elections. And now she's got five titles as well. She's Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. She's Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work. She's Shadow Shadow First Secretary of State. She's Deputy Leader of the Opposition and Deputy Leader of the Labour Party. Imagine the size of her business cards. What I particularly like about Angela Rayner's new uh, title, Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work, is that there isn't even a Secretary of State for the future of work. What coup? How disappointing would it be, though, if she confronts the non-existent Secretary of State for the future of work at the dispatch box and ends up coming second best? It wasn't a great election for Keir Starmer either, or a great reshuffle. You do kind of start to wonder about the judgment of a man who still takes a photo of Morrissey into the barbers with him and says, can you make me look just like that? Then again, it wasn't a great election either for Lawrence Fox, who came sixth in the London mayor race behind a YouTuber called Nico Omilana. Nico's platform included pledges like, Boris Johnson will be forced to shush. 
introduce stop and serve, which will include free school meals, and the price of the Freddo bar will go back down to 5p. No doubt Lawrence Fox, who's known to be very sensitive about jokes concerning his ex-wife, Billy Piper, will be asking, how can people vote for a candidate like that? And the answer will be, because we want to, because we want to. More election talk in a minute, but later in the podcast, we'll be talking about my British campaigns that have been launched on Facebook by Brexiteers. And we asked our listeners and readers on social media this question. As a Remainer, would you join in in a by British campaign? Um, Great responses to this. I think this is one of the best responses uh, that we've ever had. Uh, So thanks very much for that. Mike Abbott says this campaign smacks of the I'm backing Britain. Uh, appeal developed by the Wilson government in the late 1960s. It had support from Jimmy Savile and a toe-cringing record from Bruce Forsyth. That's right, it did. Um, Robert Maxwell was uh, was involved in that, Mike, while he was still a Labour MP, and I believe the, the uh, campaign kind of fell down a bit when its, uh, its T-shirts, its campaign T-shirts, turned out to have been made in Portugal. Martin Hamper says, uh, the food I buy um, is whatever uh, is on the shelves that I need and matches my budget. The uh, country of origin only matters now that thanks to Brexit, prices are slowly but steadily increasing. Uh, I've noticed that too. Um, Jane Wakeman says, I try to buy British for environmental reasons, where it makes sense and where it reduces my carbon footprint. However, I'm not interested in buying British for nationalistic reasons. I'm certainly not going to back any kind of tub-thumping, waving campaign just for the sake of it scott mccaffrey says yes i will join a buy british campaign i'm only buying british wine british tea and british bmws from now on uh, diana strasser says i try to buy local anyway but some things are not produced in the uk at all or only at certain times of the years i would rather not die of scurvy says diana strasser um quite right too angelina serena angelina angela serena gilmore says i wouldn't join a by british campaign because i live in berlin i would starve since brexit the number of goods made in britain at our local supermarket has just dropped to only chivers marmalade and after eight mints dr barnowl Uh, I suspect not his real name, also mentions marmalade. He says, if you bought British, there would be no coffee, tea, marmalade. Uh, He says that Seville oranges are mostly grown for the UK. There'd be no pineapple, citrus fruit, tonic water, scuppering your G&T, and no spices, no thanks. And Peter Jordan Turner says, this is nonsense. We've always had the opportunity to buy British products, often at a premium, in some cases of inferior quality. But as with every nation on earth, we have gone with the cheapest option. Why should now be any different? As part of the EU, we could buy easily from our neighbours. Now our choices are increasingly far away. The environmental impact is the important factor. The jingoism is an irrelevance. Well, this is a a really interesting debate. I'll be talking about this uh, with Josh Barry from the I newspaper shortly. Um, and we'll have some more of your responses too. Our first guest today is the journalist, writer, friend of the New European, Paddy Howey. He's written for us 
uh, on topics before, including Merseyside. Um, he's he, Paddy's uh, lecturing at um, Edge Hill University in Merseyside now, and uh, he's also written about unionism. This week's edition, we've got his take on the local elections, maybe a slightly less gloomy view for Labour than the one you might have picked up elsewhere. Paddy, welcome. There's there's no sugarcoat in it that it wasn't a great night for Labour, was it, on, on Thursday? But you're seeing some hope um, out of what you, you're you calling the shifting sands of British politics for them. Just explain why. I think it's, it's probably going to take some time for the media narrative to catch up with the kind of granular level of the, the changing kind of demographic profile across Britain, Steve. I think that there, um, while, while it is absolutely undeniably a huge story that the former working class organised labour heartlands of the North East, which gave organised labour so much of its its character and its, its sense of self-identity have seemingly en masse gone to vote Tory, which isn't necessarily the case. There are you know strong pockets of Labour-dominated councils up there. It is really important to see that that there is a change in the kind of identity of, of that working class in the suburban or exurban um, or, or, or those post-industrial towns. However, as has been pointed out by you know people, Rob Ford, etc., that the, the the changing complexion of the of the British um, of, of the of the British electorate sees that maybe the, you know the Labour Party that was founded to service um, you know organised labour, industrial labour, um, that that was specifically really important after the Second World War, where social democracy helped rebuild Britain and helped rebuild countries across the European continent and and, and gave a kind of organisational framework around the potentially kind of tricky area of you know, worker relations and representation of the working class. With that type of post-industrial world and the change in nature of the workforce, the change in nature of the workplace, the cha- I remember that industrialised labour tended to live cheek by jowl with other organised labour. And that's how we built up pictures of areas with very coherent kind of identity structures based around work. Whenever that work disappears and the, the, and the work changes, and we see with, perhaps with the growing homeownership and you know, more kind of uh, social mobility, people actually moving away from those areas, away from the northeast I'm talking about, then away from the northeast, we're getting a picture of, of, of labour and of parties of the left of the left beginning to be as much about kind of cosmopolitan urban white lower white collar kinds of labor and I think that was one of the patterns that that really shone out for me in the uh, local elections on Thursday evening you, you're talking a piece about um, about Sefton Central where where exactly is that uh, on Merseyside what's it like in Sefton Central and why is it important to labor? Um, well, I'm actually sitting in, in my wee office in a, in a town called Crosby, and some of you will know Crosby from Anthony Gormley's statues of the hundred metal men staring into the sea, negatively yes. staring into the sea. Um, and I've lived here for 26, going on 27 years. My wife was spent her teenage years here and was brought up here. My father-in-law, who only died recently, God rest him, um, was a Crosby lad, born and bred, saved for eight years out in the in the Navy. And Crosby, when I came here from my first job, which was on the Crosby Herald and Bootle Times, the first story I did was the 1995 dock strike, which is, you know, the last yeah. major kind of industrial 
people will know that as the the strike where um, uh, Robbie Fowler lifted up, up yeah. for Liverpool and was wearing the Dockers thing. And I regularly went down. My first job as a journalist was maybe because I looked a bit rough and from Northern Ireland, they sent me down because I was less genteel than some other people. And I would go down to the the, the, the picket line at the docks, which I drive past near enough every, every day now at Seaforth. And at that time, Crosby and the Crosby Herald, as opposed to the Bootle Times, which is a very working class area just outside Liverpool city centre, Crosby was a quite a genteel kind of middle class area. I live on the edge of a of a of a ward. I'm in the ward, but I'm not in the posh bit of Blundell Sands. Um, it, you could have been forgiven to think that Crosby and Formby, just up the coast where Matt Kelly comes from, the editor of the, the editor in chief of the paper comes from. We're, we're kind of like sort of G.K. Chesterton, you know, uh, Agatha Christie type type places. And in the piece I wrote about Crosby having, you know, it has two very well-regarded public schools, Merchant Taylor's and St. Mary's. Uh, it has, you know, million pound houses uh, where Virgil van Dyke, Carlo Ancelotti, Jamie Carragher, further up the coast in Formby, Stephen Gerrard's family still lives there, Jurgen Klopp still lives there. So the nouveau riche kind of new money exists cheek by jowl with with old money and it almost anywhere else in the country and you know and the same could be said for instance of the west world um the constituency on the on the west coast of the world peninsula crosby's about six miles outside of liverpool at the southern end southern end Sefton central to northern end and formby's about 12 or 13 miles from liverpool city center and both of those were until about until the blur years very solidly middle-class Tory places. And, uh, uh, you know, we still talk about going into Crosby Village, like we're in Chipping Norton or somewhere. Another place, by the way, which fell to labour at the weekend. And Crosby, because of this shifting dynamic, there are a number of cross-cutting issues that make Crosby a very safe labour seat. Stuart wilkes Heat from the University of Liverpool has written a brilliant journal article on this. And, you know, at Crosby... Um, it has a lot of kind of social mobility. Has taken you know university educated people first in their in their first in their family to go to university. High number of those people working in you know white collar professional managerial roles. High level of senior managerial uh, role profiles in the public sector. Um, you know teaching professions, medicine, law, accountancy. Um, it it has high degree of home ownership. Um, it has terrific public services. All of these things, given the kind of pork barrel nature of modern Tory politics, would lead you to think that Crosby should still be a Tory seat, but it's safe by 8,000 votes. It's the most unlikely safe Labour seat. And I think it says something about the changing demographics of the Labour Party, that it now accommodates people whose parents would have been comfortably Tory. One of the cross-cutting influences, I think, undoubtedly, and I've written about it twice now in the independent in the European over the years. I was, I, I wrote in the founding edition of the European, I'm one of the founding people of the new European. But I've written about Hillsborough. I think Hillsborough and Thatcher have left indelible memories on the people of Merseyside that will mean that very that that they will not vote for the Tories in significant numbers ever again. Certainly not within the living memory of of my generation. And you see enough among the mobilised. Uh, football fans of Liverpool and Everton to suggest that, that goes across both divides. I mean, there's you can see that there is. I mean, I can understand the the the, the Liverpool thing uh, post Hillsborough, and you can see that there is some kind of spreading out from um, of Labour success in 
kind of northern metropolitan areas where you know maybe there are universe large universities or, or, or stuff like that you mentioned Chippy Norton though I mean is there are there other places where Labour are not expected to win that they will now be targeting is there is there something that we could call a blue wall and and you know are there positive signs uh, out of last Thursday for Labour there um, in the piece, I, I talked about that towards the end and, and saying that I think it might be embryonic. Mm. But I think all political change is, is, like, is, is like cultural change in that, it's, that it has to happen incrementally rather than suddenly. I think part of the, the way that we tell the, the electoral history of the 1990s in Britain is that all of a sudden Blair came and bang, it changed overnight. Whereas incrementally there was a, a gradual uh, weakening of support for the Tories post um, Thatcher, um, and uh, obviously it was a gradual loss of trust because of the number of scandals aligned to that. But also there was a, a maturing of of the, the post boomer, whatever whatever we call Gen X, or whatever it is. And yeah. um, there was a gradual kind of that that first generation who went to university en masse, um, that first generation of people who had saw significant, significantly more social mobility than their parents had. And those people are now into, you know, maybe their second generation of homeownership. I think it was really interesting that the New Statesman has talked this week about um, how Tory grandees like Theresa May in what would again have been, would be seats a bit like Sefton Central are really worried about um, uh, property development in their areas because the people who are coming out into the, the home counties or those areas around in London are, are tend to be Labour voters. And so mm-hmm. you're building houses to satisfy maybe, you know, Tory, you know, Tory supporting uh, property developers or the big construction companies. And we're getting increasingly liberal people coming out to raise families outside of London. And maybe post-pandemic, where people don't need to spend that much time in London anymore, can work remotely, that's going to accelerate. But I was greatly taken by the small, yet I still think quite significant when we think about the incremental uh, change, those, those, those small advances or wins in places like Kent, uh, places like the Chipping Norton, so rural Oxfordshire, like who was ever going to think that? You know, Surrey. Um, so I think that shifting demographics also come with the kind of the, the shifting profile of um, the, the profile of, 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 of geographies. I was very taken by the I saw a brilliant sort of scatter graph or kind of representation of the areas where um, uh, BAME, black and minority communities live, yes. which are overwhelmingly uh, labour spots. Uh, yet white working class bases tend to be Tory. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think that that's another interesting dynamic. Um, so I, I think it's one of those cases where the, the big headline was going to be, you know, all the kind of ecky thumpers like flat cap, um, Northerners who look a bit like handicap <laughs> suddenly gone, uh, gone blue. And this is a you know you know using our knowledge of news value, Steve. That was a kind of obvious and easy signifier yeah. of the top line because as journalists we always look for the top line. But actually, that nuanced idea of what's happening to the demographics underneath is more difficult to discuss in short packages for the evening news or even for the website. So I, I, I would keep an eye on that because I think it's. You know, certainly in terms of social mobility and the, the kind of volume of people who are leaving universities in, in, the, in the massification of education period, which is post 2000, will begin to take, uh, begin to have an effect 
very soon, I think. I'm not suggesting that they're going to be the deciding factor in a Labour rebound. I think there are a lot of internal things about yes. Labour that need to be addressed, especially given the fact that they seem to be uh, arguing over the same kind of binary of are we going flat cap Brexit or are we going to embrace, uh, you know, embrace avocado boomers? I don't know. Now, I mean, it's a difficult time for, for, for Keir Starmer, isn't it? He's, I mean, I'm just looking at his popularity rating before we, we came on here, which has gone down from plus 22 to minus 48 in one year, which is, I mean, that's a remarkable achievement. Is there, is there any, are there any clues for what he should do and what direction he should take Labour in, 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 in what the North West Metro mayors talked about? Because, you know, Burnham was back, Steve Rotherham's back, Tracy Tracy Brave in one, which, you know, I, I mean, I thought that was really in the balance. Are there any clues in, in what they offered? Well, I mean, there's a great line from, was it series three of The Wire, where, you know, Slim Charles says, like, you know, uh, even if it's a lie, we've got to fight on that lie. And I think, you know, Labour has to stand for something as opposed to pretending for standing for everything. As I wrote in the piece, I haven't I haven't opened the paper yet. I haven't seen uh, how much uh, made into the paper, um, but one of the things you know that 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 I said about about that is is that at least in the northwest there is a clear sense of of, of what labour is about and who it speaks to, mm. and there's clear kind of in and out groups. Um, whereas with with what Starmer's approach seems to be to try and capture everyone without standing for anything. And, you know, I think there already is a party that does that. That's the Tories, and they've done that. You know, that the Tories, I think, in, in one sense, have become a kind of British version of Fianna Foil in the Republic of Ireland, which is, you know, they're going to take a view is that they'll support anything that's right or that's going to win. And eventually, at some point, the kind of depthlessness of that is going to come back and rebound on you as happened with Fianna Foyle, which is quite comfortably the third party in the Republic of Ireland now, albeit it bore the brunt of lots of fallouts from tribunals and corruption. Does this ring any bells? Um, so I think that what, what, what Labour has done in the North West is, is to have been able to tie itself to a very strong sense of identity of place and people and identity whilst, you know, negotiating the, the, the Brexit uh, kind of moat, you know, the, the Brexit divide, sorry, you know, parts of, I, I wrote in, I think, it was the, fir- the very first edition of the European in 2016, June 2016, I wrote a kind of state of the nation piece about Merseyside in the Northwest. Yes. And, you know, get outside of, get outside of Liverpool, get outside of Sefton, get outside of Wirral and get into Knowsley and Halton uh, and Ellesmere Port and Neston and those types of places and uh, those you know, ex-industrial, post-industrial places like, you know, uh, in, in Nosley's case, Highton and Kirby, which are classic 1960s, 1950s and 60s new towns that used to be surrounded by factories that are now all empty and derelict. And we have a high number of people commuting to other places in their cars. They were all Brexit Britain. But Labour has managed to negotiate that divide um, because it stands for something that might be anti-Tory. It might be a sense of regional and national, uh, sorry, regional um, and local kind of pride in a sense that, well, we know that they're not going to do anything for us, that they're not going to do anything for you. We will. One of the things that they said in the Northeast is we've been sending labour to London for years and they've never done anything for us. 
as I said in the piece, like you neatly forgetting that it was 11 years of Tory austerity that are at the heart of that, that hasn't bled through. When that bleeds through, whenever the pork barrel politics of Brexit, Tories, Tories, the Tory Brexiteers doesn't fulfil what those people expect, whenever the kind of downfall of Nissan and the fishing industry and things come along, then I'm not entirely sure that that identity is nearly as strong as Dominic Cummings or the architects of that red wall think it is. But in the metro uh, area, Steve Rotherham and and Andy Burnham have said, uh, and I've written about it in the paper, they've made strong noises about social housing. They've made very, very strong noises about taking public transport or uh, public transport back into public hands. And those are things that chime well in the Northwest. And as long as they are seen to have achieved them, I think they'll work. Tracy Braben, I've written about in the paper this week as well. I think that's a fascinating um, win there because that, that was in the heart of a kind of bit of Brexit Britain, wasn't it? Yeah. And Fleet Street Fox wrote a great piece this week saying, you know, actually, Labour have understood devolution in a way that the Tories haven't. And if you want to get things done at a local place, you've got to take power at local levels. And I think they've been cognizant that once you get power at a local level, you have to deliver on your promises. You know, in Liverpool, for instance, you know, because of Joe Anderson, who wrote for the paper uh, not too long ago, and the, the kind of corruption uh, investigation that's going on at the minute in Liverpool, the Lib Dems, so I know very many of them haven't been a journalist in the Liverpool Echo for a long time, and the Greens, and I know very many because I am, after all, a university lecturer, so it's the law to know very many Green people in the Green Party, <laughs> if you do my job. And they really sniffed blood. And, and they sniffed blood, particularly in the kind of leafier end of South Liverpool, you know, the blue suburban skies that the Beatles talked about. Mm. And Labour got away with a bloody nose, but it won a points decision. But it also won the mayoral battle. Joanne Anderson, uh, who's from Liverpool, won the mayoral battle from Stephen Yip, who's a very, very well-known and respected charity um, campaigner. Campaigner, who yeah. Who stood independently. He's run Kind, which is a, a, a kids a children's charity for very, very many years, very well respected, and 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 they won that battle in Liverpool. So I, I think that's that's really important to recognise that although that you know they, they were under a lot of pressure in various places locally, they still came through and came through with some with some ease in some places. And I do and I do wonder, you know, I I do wonder about the effect of, of incumbency during a pandemic on these elections as well. And you know, we've seen we've seen the SNP return, we've seen Welsh Labour return, we've seen the English government party of government return, uh, and, uh, and and doing well as well. And and you know, maybe it's maybe it's too soon to to write off some of those red wall seats. Uh, completely. Before I let you go, Paddy, you are from, uh, from from you mentioned the island of Ireland, and you, you're from the north, I, I think. First of all, how much are you looking forward to the DUP leadership elections? And and second, I mean, how fearful are you about what might happen next over there? Uh, and I guess how much of that is directly Brexit related? Um. Well, I've written about the Republican movement. My, my book, Shinners, Dissels and Dissenters, if we can get a plug in, um, is about Irish Republican media activism since 1998. So I've been under the bonnet of that particular mindset uh, for, for, a, for a long time, since I started doing my PhD in 2008. And I published the book in 2018. It's come out in paperback recently, and I'm still writing about Republicans. Um, I think in terms of, if we're if I answer your second question first, if we're thinking about a return to violence on some level that's comparable to 
some periods during the Troubles, if not the Earth. Some people said it, it feels a lot like 1967, 68. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it is. I don't think, I don't think it feels like that at all. I think that the conditions, the Cold War uh, conditions that were kind of framing that, that period were, you know, just on a very basic level where people got gear to wage a war with, that doesn't exist anymore, I yes. don't think. And I think at the security forces, uh, people that I know in the security forces would say the same thing. Um, that's not to say that there aren't a lot of arms that weren't decommissioned and, and, and haven't come in subsequently as part of like, you know, criminal gangs that have sprung up out of the, the ashes or out of the, the formations of, of, of the old, of the old uh, political gangs. Um, in terms of the DUP, uh, sorry, I think undoubtedly, uh, you had Gail Walker on last week. I think undoubtedly there will be some uh, anxiety and agitation around the marching season because as Gail pointed out last week, really people who feel like they should celebrate the centenary of Northern Ireland haven't got the opportunity to celebrate the centenary of Northern Ireland. And, and if you if you take that into, you know, the what we call the 12th or the marching season, then there there could be flashpoints of agitation at places like Ardoin in North Belfast, um, maybe some places down the country, uh, maybe maybe Derry as well. Um, in terms of the DUP leadership election, I think you know, well, it's, a, it's not an election, really, is it? It's thirty something people who are yes. going to elect two hardliners. Um, you know, in any election where Jeffrey Donaldson is the liberal voice, then we have to kind of ask questions about it in terms of the political spectrum or compass. Secondly, you know, where Jeffrey Donaldson makes noises about becoming even more hardline than Edwin Poots, then you, you can see that there's a real battle for uh, the heart of the DUP going on. The DUPs, and, and both the candidates represent perfectly two phases of the DUP. So Edmund Poots is that, represents that evangelical free Presbyterian Paisleyism uh, very rural in many cases, uh, Paisleyism, um, you know, uh, you know, still worried about papists and the Pope of Rome and the European project being a papist takeover and all that kind of stuff. And as you talked about in the podcast last week, you know, you know, has questions about dinosaurs and blah, blah, blah. And the world being, I think Gail said 6,000 years old. I think he said recently he thinks the world's 4,000 years oh, old. Really? Yeah. I think he, I think he's rounded it down again. Oh, um, no. Yeah. Um, and, but, Jeffrey Donaldson represents a a, a different wing of that party, which is more new. The DUP is only 50 years old and, and it's really a response to the troubles and the, you know, the the Catholic civil rights movement is, is part of what that that Paisley finds that party for, as well as a, you know, a kind of more proletarian sort of trenchant reaction against the unionism of Sir Terence O'Neill and those kind of, you know, the, the old, the old guard official unionism, big house unionism, which stretches back to, you know, the plantation in many ways, certainly mm. to the late 18th and early 19th centuries. But Jeffrey Donaldson and Arlene Foster represent the kind of non-evangelical, um, they, they were both official unionists or Ulster unionists. At a time whenever, you know, if you were a young unionist politician looking to get into politics seriously and make advancement, and you look at the unionist, the official Ulster Unionist Party or the DUP, equally, if you were a Catholic or a nationalist and you were asked to make a decision in the early 2000s about whether it's Sinn Féin or the SDLP, if you were a unionist, you were going to go for the DUP and you were going to go for Sinn Féin if you were a nationalist because that's where an ambitious politician was going to get some sense of power and progress. You, you don't choose the party that's going to be in second place in a very narrow two-horse fight. 
But in between the, that kind of wing of the, or as that wing of the DUP grew and they ascended to be the biggest party in the assembly, um, what happened in Northern Ireland was, you know, the, the demographic time bomb of, of Catholics becoming the majority community, but also this growing kind of middle ground, uh, 20% people call it, the people who don't call themselves either Catholics or Protestants or Nationalists or Unionists. This is, you know, a, an urban cosmopolitan, again, based around, you know, Belfast city centre and the, and, and, Bel- and, and, and the suburbs has been growing. Pete Sherlow at University of Liverpool, um, his um, election survey from 2019 showed this really clearly, that there is a, a very strong you know, uh, center ground in Northern Ireland that is, isn't religious in any way, is socially liberal, which reacts badly against social conservatism. And that has snuck up on the DUP. The DUP has doubled down on taking itself further right in a, in a way to try and consolidate the votes that it may take from the Ulster Unionist Party or from TUV, traditional unionist voice, which is you know, even more further to the loyalist right than the DUP is. And, 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 and the DUP really on the latest polling could be looking at 19%. It'll drop from wow. maybe 30% of the votes at the, uh, when I was just starting to write the, the second edition of the book in 2017, um, you know, they were, they were 20, they were up to 36, 29 seats yeah. you know, with about 30% of the, of the electorate. That could be below 20% next time round. And they're absolutely shelling votes to the alliance. Uh, and, and that's bad news for them because they probably have captured as much of the TUV right of loyalism and unionism as they possibly can. There isn't really a lot of room to expand into that and to come back towards the middle if they ever did uh, in any significant way. Risks alienating that side. So they're, they're a, a, a party that are caught between one kind of problem of their own making, which is a strategic mistake that was made to go further right. Peter Robinson has talked about this long before he, he was forced to give up the leadership of the DUP. He talked about wanting Catholic voters to vote number four for the DUP. Any sort of Catholic vote would be good enough to also being blindsided on the other side by this kind of growing liberalization, social liberalization that's informing how people vote on the other side. So it's a it's a it's a straight, very strange position that the DP find themselves in and one that I can't see any kind of solution for them. Yeah. More more shifting sands. Paddy, that's terrific. We will catch up with uh, Paddy Howie uh, again in the future. I, I I hope I hope we'll catch up soon. Thanks a lot. My second guest today wrote a piece that's been among the most popular on our website this week. You can read it in issue 242 of the New European, and it asks, how has Brexit changed the food that's available in our shops? Is always buying British food, is it always the right idea? And is is always buying British food even possible? Who better to answer all these questions than a friend of the New European, a friend of mine, is uh, from the iNewspaper, the iNewspaper's food and drink writer, Josh Barry. Hello, Josh. Hello. Now, this all started um, with you looking at some Facebook groups run by Brexiteers or run by patriotic people um, who were advocating always buying British food. What, What goes on in those groups? Well, it's not just British food, actually, but I suppose that's the kind of easiest way into it. Um, typical, 
I'd actually kind of not been back onto Facebook in a year or two or not properly anyway, but looking through these groups, um, it's a, it's, it's a collective um, with the same ideal to champion and support British produce, which I suppose in one sense is a really positive thing. And it's a good thing because, you know, every, you can't go into a supermarket today and not see buy British. And why wouldn't we buy British beef, for example? But I, I suppose it kind of, gets a little bit farcical when they're trumpeting everything that you can buy and then it sort of gets a little bit you know insular there's not really a kind of allowance of anything from Europe or beyond really which is one of the things that makes um, eating food in this country or anywhere really exciting. Are they are they just in this because to thumb their noses at the EU I mean, are they are they advocating that we should only eat British food or are they advocating that we should eat food that might, you know, stack up the the air miles uh, uh, and, and might have lower welfare standards, but just don't happen to come from the EU? Well, I don't know whether you can be that general, because I'm sure different people in the, in the groups, there are any number of them, by the way have sort of slightly different values but I guess the core group my impression is not so much a view of sustainability or locality or seasonality you know while that might be the case for some and the consideration of things like air miles or whatever but I think really it's just a little bit it is generally just everything British fly the flag um create that identity and that's entrenched so while some might be thinking oh you know we should definitely only buy british beef because why wouldn't why wouldn't we you know it's 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 arguably the best in the world and also you know if you're flying beef over from brazil i'm not you know i don't think many people outside of these groups are saying we should completely close down everything but there are some foods that make a lot more sense but in terms of the groups and some of the conversations and the people you know that they, they don't even there was one thing that made me laugh quite a lot um i don't know whether it was real but you know oh you know named a supermarket and saying prosecco coming from italy you know we should be drinking prosecco in england um and i suppose you know no one's saying we shouldn't drink the brilliant english sparkling wine that's being made but um i think a lot of it is short-sightedness really if we had to if we applied this strictly and we were only buying and eating british food would have we got do we actually produce enough food in britain for us to all not starve well we would be no we don't we if we if we if we only ate british food we'd be out by august um this year and this is when i wrote the piece so i'm guessing it would now be kind of september or october um we'd have you know we've got plenty of lamb we've got enough carrots just about um to a point you know um but that's that's those foods alongside everything else that we import so while we can say we're 100% you know self-efficient on beef we only are because we don't eat beef every day I'm sure some people would quite like to eat beef every day um could be sort of a Jacob Rees-Mogg <laughs> yeah or the or the lady in the Devil Wears Prada who has a lunchtime steak from Smith and Lansky can't remember her name but what a film that is 
anyway, we're not self-sufficient. We'd all be very hungry. And also the important thing beyond that is our food would be a lot less diverse. And, you know, who wants to go back to peasantry in the Middle Ages when we just had sort of potatoes, a couple of sprigs of turnip uh, and some quite stale beer, um, a bit like Stella left in the boot of a car for about eight months. What are the things that we eat where we could just eat our own? I mean, we have a lot of, we bring in a lot of apples from Poland, don't we? And, and yeah. we bring in a lot of bacon from Denmark, I guess, still. Yeah, a lot of bacon from Denmark, Polish apples, um, which is kind of curious in itself, given we're sort of, you know, if you were to, to attribute a, a fruit to this country, it'd probably say apples, wouldn't you? But yeah. we don't have enough of them. Um, but it's fruit and veg is where we really fall down actually um we produce a lot of meat both high-end and for the kind of mass market mainstream uh, a lot of kind of pork in suffolk and turkey in norfolk we've got loads of beef all around a lot of lamb in wales which is delicious and brilliant and um and we've got lots of fish in abundance we don't need them we don't actually eat enough of that we could probably uh, of all the kind of graphs we produce, you know, it looked at the meat and veg and stuff, which are the staples and which are for an island nation. It's, it's slightly bizarre. We don't eat more fish and we could probably survive a little bit longer actually. Um, if we did, um, that's if the French boats don't come over and, you know, <laughs> but, um, no, we, we'd be very hungry and we'd all be very bored if we didn't have food from elsewhere. Um, could we just could we just put up more and more polytunnels to to um, could we just cover the whole of Kent with polytunnels the bits that aren't lorry parks <laughs> could we just make it Kent into the, the the garden of lorry parks and polytunnels and does does food that is grown in polytunnels does it taste as good as a you know a tomato that's grown in a polytunnel in at Thanet Earth say does that taste as good as a tomato that's grown in in you know, Italy somewhere. Well, I don't know about this polytunnel malarkey. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure we do have enough space. You know, if James Dyson came along and decided he wanted to create giant polytunnel worlds, you know, um, I, I, I imagine, I don't think we'd have enough. I don't know. I, there are various stats all around, aren't there? You know, for, for example, I, I've heard many times if every chicken in this country was free range, you know, we'd be walking among them all over the place. And um, I suppose taste-wise, when you consider tomatoes, well, the Isle of Wight is the most, is probably the most prevalent part of the country for producing tomatoes here. And the, those grown in polytunnels outside the season, you know, um, are all right. But I don't think anything tastes like a homegrown juicy tomato from your grandmother's greenhouse or mm. when you're kind of perusing um the market stalls on the amalfi coast and you can smell that sort of earthy aroma emanating and there's some sort of angry italian woman shouting at you about goodness knows what nothing tastes as good as those tomatoes that might be a little bit of what's that spectator phrase the provence rosé paradox where yes. everything tastes better when you're on holiday which is true but mm. no come on everything tastes better from the you know grown properly in the allotment that's not that's very idealistic sort of mindset isn't it and it's not really possible in the modern world but it should be i mean there's nothing wrong with trying is there to grow a little bit more like that no and i don't think there's anything 
you know, intrinsically wrong with the idea about of, of eating more British food and, and more sort of seasonal food, you know, not, not just because it is, um, you know, because we've got very good welfare standards in this country and we need to limit food miles for sustainability anyway. But as you say, just because it's really good. But the idea that we would give up, um, you know, imagine, you know, giving up Italian ham and French cheese and all of these things that we've, you know, we've spent the last 70 years or so um, enjoying. Um, just tell me about what's what's happening to, to actual workers now. Are, are people, are farmers and, and producers, are they suffering from a lack of the EU labour now? And, and if we did buy British exclusively, who who is going to pick all this fruit and veg? Yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, you can the the fruit and veg picking is a little bit of a longer time scale, but you can see what will happen or what is happening in the restaurant industry now. In that, all across the sector, restaurants and pubs that have for so long relied on EU nationals, and that's been a great thing. Um, you know, it's flexible working and you can come and go and work and study and whatever at the same time. Um, and they're struggling to, to find staff and skilled staff. You know, hospitality is one of the most demanding and um, exciting industries in the country. It's our third largest employer. It's our, it's a third largest economy. Um, and, and they're struggling to find the staff and it will suffer as a result. I'm sure they'll get through and people will find jobs and, you know, skilled positions but and that will be reflected or mirrored in the in the fruit picking and everything as well because they if if anything they employ more and rely more on EU nationals to mm. fruit and veg because they don't you know British people don't want those jobs I heard a story this is true um in lockdown when you know a lot of people went home back to wherever um and fair enough you know in a pandemic and they had to fly in groups into Luton and then get them onto coaches and out to the fields. These are also skilled positions. There's another point, you know, this takes a lot of work and training and know-how. It's not easy going out into fields and picking X number of strawberries an hour. Um, you know, arguably they should be paid a lot more for that. But anyway, that was me rambling. Short answer, sorry, <laughs> short answer, no, we'll, we'll be quite buggered really. Yeah, it looks. I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it? And and I, I was I was looking last week at a, an interview with a, a a guy who owned two or three restaurants who was was kind of saying, well, we were, we were expecting some people to come in from Kenya, uh, some chefs to come in from from Kenya, but you know, and that's now been on a some kind of red list or a warning list or, or whatever, and, and even that route is um, is closed off. Um, what do you think is going to happen then? Are we going to we, we we are going to eat more British food as a result of this, aren't we? The, the supermarkets seem quite keen to push it. Well, I think so, and and I think this might have predated Brexit. Actually, that this idea that you know yes. why would we fly in this and the other, you know, kind of that that I think it was with good intentions, certainly in a lot of people, and from the kind of companies in mind. There's this general consideration of i don't know the easiest one is air miles um 
and that's fair enough and it's a positive thing to begin with but yeah maybe we will end up eating more british food and and maybe it will be fine um for a while but i think if things kind of continue on this trajectory can you imagine a world without camembert and brie and parma ham and prosciutto and what have you i'd i'd be very sad i think a lot of people would because we've got used to that um and if it's going to become more expensive even if it's not going to get to the point where we we're unable to buy those things they might go back to being complete luxuries rather than something that you might pick up in the supermarket and that's not nice is it we should be working towards a more kind of democratized food system really and it's probably only gonna marginalize people and create a bit a bigger gap between the some of the kind of nicer indulgences that we've become accustomed to well that's uh yeah i mean that's that's a a, a thought to uh to, to end on a, a slightly depressing thought to end on but you know we, we can look forward to um what can we look forward to salmon for breakfast we've got lamb and carrots for for a light lunch of lamb and carrots maybe with a bit of beef and then for dinner just um just pick up one of those free-range chickens that's running around your, your feet and uh, and well, just gnaw on that i imagine most of our salmon comes from sweden i'm afraid <laughs> um <laughs> and then you know we, we we export all our salmon that we farm in uh, Scotland <laughs> to japan i think um so actually we won't be having salmon for breakfast i think probably more likely will be porridge uh followed by some sort of potato and carrot stew maybe with some hunks of beef in there um, but of course if the economy dips we'll have to sell all our um luxury meat to america so um really <laughs> i think we'll just be sort of wandering the fields asking for uh, people to come and pick us some strawberries really marvelous get gruelled on how about yeah. that there's a there's a slogan for you thanks yeah. so much uh josh barry he's food yes, writer Steve. food and drink editor writer rather Not for yes. uh the i newspaper hello i'm ian dunt i write every week in the new european on westminster politics and what happens after brexit if you'd like to enjoy more from the new european do join us by subscribing for just eight pounds a month at the new european.co.uk forward slash subscribe Thanks again to Josh Barry. The Hall of Shame is coming up in a second. But first, more of your thoughts about buying British. We asked, remember, uh, we asked, as uh, as Remainers, would you support a Buy British campaign? Barbara Daniel, she says, where possible, I've always tried to buy Welsh produce first, then British, then EU and fair trade for the rest of the world. However, whether that continues uh, after Brexit will depend on the food standards that the UK government adopts. Um, I think that's a, a fair point, which many people will uh, will endorse. For Melikos, uh, I'm sure I've pronounced that incorrectly, says um, I won't be Brian British. Brexit was an entirely British product, and I'm not buying that either. David Bell says, I remember British-made cars, so no thanks, I won't be buying exclusively British. Lynn Owen says, I do not like the nationalistic jingoism being peddled by the government and emulated by some shops. Having said that, the fact of buying British helps reduce transport costs 
uh, apples from Chile and New Zealand are not good for the environment. My views depend on the circumstances. She also says Aldi is a German company, so I find their use of the Union Jack a bit hilarious. David Robertson says we should all consider buying British. I've always have done, especially to reduce food miles. In terms of creating a greener economy and reducing our carbon footprint, it's often the best bet to buy products that are locally produced. If I was French, I would buy local too. Uh, Don Roach, who now lives in Greece, says, I would love to buy British, but with Boris Johnson's marvellous trade deal, it's impossible. I bought an e-pipe from England for £57. When I collected it from my local post office in Rhodes, they asked for €54 in import duties. World class, €54 in import duties. And Oh Hello Troll uh, says... Buying British is not patriotic at all. It's the Tories trying to guilt us into buying local because producers and manufacturers can't export to Europe anymore. If it was really patriotism, they wouldn't have suffocated exports and used the message without leaving the EU. Well, there's loads more of those on our social media accounts. Please check them out. And thank you to the hundreds of you who participated in that. It's a fascinating debate. We will return to it um, in future podcasts and future issues of the New European. But now it's time for the Hall of Shame. The Hall of Shame is our new home for rubbish ministers, political blather, things that just generally annoy me. And one of them this week is, is the Brexit minister, Lord Frost. Lord Frost says the special Brexit arrangements for Northern Ireland, as they stand, are unworkable. He warned that the UK would continue to consider all of our options in relation to the Northern Ireland protocol. Um, and he said, it's clear from my visit to Northern Ireland that the protocol is presenting significant changes for many. It is hard to see that the way the Northern Ireland Protocol is currently operating can be sustainable for long. So why doesn't he launch an inquiry aimed at finding the name of the idiot who negotiated this Northern Ireland Protocol in the first place? I believe that he even got a peerage for doing so, one for Lord Frost to investigate that. Liz Truss is in the Hall of Shame. Well done to the Trade Secretary. She signed trade deals with 23 countries, including Canada, Switzerland, Norway, Singapore. Just one problem about these trade deals. All of them feature clauses which specifically exclude manufacturers from benefiting from tax breaks that might come out of the government's flagship Freeport programme. That means we're going to be shut out of export markets worth 35 billion quid a year. So companies taking part advantage of the new Freeport zones at the East Midlands Airport, at Felixstowe and Harwich, uh, in the Humber, in the Liverpool City region, Plymouth, South Devon, uh, Solent, Thames and Teesside, all of those new Freeports, if you're in those, you're going to have to pay tariffs at potentially punitive rates on exports to countries which together make up almost 10% of the UK's global export market. Great work there, Liz Trust. Maybe get Lord Frost in to renegotiate it for you. Alack, harumph, egad. Yes, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner. And in her Daily Express column this week, Anne Widdicombe is very angry about foreign aid. She says, she writes that she can't believe that there are some Brits who would deny help to poor countries, many of whose citizens are living as we did in the Middle Ages. Now, Anne Widdicombe stood unsuccessfully for the Brexit Party in 2019. The Brexit Party's programme in that election included a pledge to cut overseas aid by half, with Nigel Farage explaining at the time, 
what we've seen over the last few years is us consistently being the highest spender on foreign aid, doing it to meet arbitrary targets, spending it in ways that enrage many people in this country. Trade, not aid, is where we should be heading. Hmm, weird. How to square that circle, Anne. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week, as with many weeks, is Boris Johnson. Speaking in Hartlepool, following his party's by-election triumph there, he said, we've got Brexit done and then we are able to do other things thanks to that. It's thanks to Brexit that we've been able to go ahead with the free port in the whole of Teesside. Not true. We are able to deal with things like the European Super League. Not true. And of course, we're able to do things a bit differently when it comes to the vaccine rollout. Not true either. Three major lies in three sentences there. As the old song nearly goes, three lines from a shit, Jules Remay still gleaming. Does this sort of thing give you much hope for the future of social care when Boris Johnson, the liar, is behind it? Remember, in July 2019, when he became PM, he said, I am announcing now on the steps of Downing Street that we will fix the crisis in social care once and for all. And with a very clear plan, we've prepared to give every older person the dignity and security they deserve. In October of 2019, he said he was going to fix the social care crisis once and for all. Well, you know, he talked about it in the Queen's speech this week, but where's the where's the beef? Where's the proof? Where's this where's this um, this clear plan that he has prepared? Um, and also, let's talk about voter suppression and a man who's voted 12 times against ID cards now wants to bring them in. He said a few years ago that he vehemently opposed ID cards. He said, I will take that card out of my wallet and physically eat it in the presence of whatever emanation of the state has demanded I produce it. You cannot trust a word uh, that Boris Johnson says, and that's why he's in the Hall of Shame. Well, that was the New European Podcast with me, Steve Anglesey. Thank you to my guests. Thank you to everyone who contributed to our debate about buying British. Thank you to you for listening. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Podcast uh, positive reviews mean a lot to us. You can subscribe to The New European at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. £10 a month gets you the printed and e-editions each week. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And you can follow the New European at the New European. And all that's left to say is Alistair Campbell, please play your bagpipes. Here you go. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.